there's, um, there's nothing worse than someone spoiling the ending of a movie or of a sporting event or of a game or a book uh, because it, it, don't, it doesn't just ruin the ending, it so often ruins the beginning. And if you know uh, the ending, it, it changes how you understand everything. And that's really one of the challenges that sometimes we have when we go into the gospel as people who know how the story ends. Today, in, in hindsight, we know that Jesus Christ is crucified and resurrected. We know that he is the Son of God. We know that, uh, that God sent him to die for our sins and to save us. And so the whole story building up to that can kind of lose some of its power. It can lose some of its, its meaning. And so when we talk about the birth of Jesus, sometimes we take for granted how incredible that moment is in human history. Uh, sometimes we can, can buy into kind of the, the nativity of it, uh, the animated picture of what's going on in the manger 2,000 years ago, and it can become ordinary. It can become like a, like a story, like a fairy tale, like uh, a long time ago, far, far away in a little manger uh, in Israel, there was a baby that was born, and it becomes this child story. And this story that we tell our kids and our children, and it can lose the power of what's happening there. And I can only imagine what it was like for the gospel writers as they're each trying to decide, how do I tell the beginning of this story? How do I start telling people what's happening in the life of Jesus Christ and what it means for all of creation and all of humanity and all of the world? How do I start? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John each had this moment where they sat down with a blank papyrus sheet in front of them and a reed quill in their hand and, and an ink, you know, some ink right there next to it. And they dipped their reed in the ink and they looked at the paper and they said, where do I begin? Where do I begin? How do I begin to tell this story? And you imagine Mark sitting here looking at his paper and going, man, no one has ever ventured to do what I'm about to do, to write the story of Jesus in a way that can be copied and distributed and, and shared with people all over the world because the world has to know what Jesus did and who he was and why he matters. And as Mark sits down, he seems to, uh, to begin with thinking, I'm just going to tell the highlights. And so if you read Mark's gospel all the way through, it is just action after action after action. And he begins, like Luke, with John the Baptist. He begins by talking about the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, and this, uh, this prophet, this speaker, this one who would come and who had been prophesied uh, to tell that, that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is near, that the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark's gospel, John is already out preaching. In Luke's gospel, it's his father that finds out that John's about to be born. And Luke begins with, with the, the longer and more developed birth narrative. Luke is the one who tells us about, uh, about Mary and angels and, and proclamations and the songs that come and the presentation at the temple and, and the boy Jesus at the temple. And you get all of this kind of developed story about the birth in Luke's gospel. Mark just jumps right in and says, I've got to tell you what matters the most. The ministry has started. The kingdom's at hand. Demons are fleeing. Miracles are happening. Let's go. Mark's ready. Luke has done all the research and he's compiled interviews and done all this work of, of gathering the stories about Jesus. And so when he sits down, he's got, I'm sure, some level of notes sitting next to him. 
And he's going, where do I begin to take all of these notes and make them into an orderly and organized story so that Theophilus and all of those who may read it after him may know that what they believe is true? John uh, starts in a totally different way. John starts with this grand poetry at the beginning of his gospel. John begins with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Boy, John gets started, doesn't he? John says, well, where do I start? Do I start by talking about how he was born? Do I start by talking about John the Baptist? John goes, no, I want you to have the full picture. And it doesn't start 2,000 years ago when Jesus is born in a manger. It starts thousands and thousands of years ago when Jesus was with God in the beginning, creating all things. All things were created in him and through him. That, that Jesus is, he goes, how do I say it? Jesus is... In the beginning, God speaks. He says, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word, and the Word created, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's trying to help us understand that Jesus, when he's born, is not a new thing. Jesus, when he's born, is not, oh, God's doing something totally new and different and unexpected. John says, if it's unexpected, it's because you weren't paying attention. Because Jesus has been with God from the beginning, and they've been working this plan all along. And he says, but it's not a surprise that you didn't expect it, or that you don't understand it, or that you may still be rejecting it. Because John says, when the Word comes into the world, it was light. And when the light comes into the world, it finds darkness. So John, in his grand description of what's going on in the beginning of the gospel, is that the world is filled with darkness and that Jesus breaking into it as a baby, God coming into the world in the flesh, is the beginning of a light breaking into the darkness in a way that was totally new, although not the beginning, because Jesus began and was there at the creation. But now the light has come into the darkness. John wants us to know uh, that Jesus has always been a part of this, but he also owns that the world and the creation, in the moment that God comes into it as, as a baby named Jesus, or Emmanuel, which means God with us, in that moment, the light comes into the darkness. But the Gospels aren't shy about the idea that the world is dark. 
One of the things that, that is so interesting in the world that we live in today is that so many people lose their faith because of the suffering that's in the world. So many people in our world say, if this is the, the way that God wants the world to function, then I can't be part of being one of that God's followers. There's too much hurt in the world. There's too much suffering in the world. I've been through too much. I can't possibly believe in a God that allows all this evil to exist. But the Gospels don't say that there's not evil. They readily recognize. In fact, John begins his Gospel by saying, the world is darkness. It's broken. There is suffering. There is hurt. There is a need for us to constantly endure and persevere and develop character because the world is hard. It's difficult here. We go through tough things and we go through tough times. And so when someone says, uh, when you're talking to someone and they say, I just don't know if I can believe in God in a world with this much suffering, you can say suffering is why you need God. All the brokenness is why you need a Savior and a Messiah who can begin healing and putting it all back together. That's why we need God to come in the flesh. Because the world was full in that moment and in the, the moment that we live in today with darkness. And when the Bible says that, uh, talks about darkness, especially in the New Testament, there's really two kinds of, uh, of, of darkness that is being talked about. The first one is active evil, the darkness that comes from, from the bad side of things. Right? If you've seen Star Wars, you know that the dark side is the bad side, right? It's the guys that are actively doing bad things and, and trying to oppress everyone. There is, in our world, a dark side. People who are, are greedy and selfish, people who are seeking their own power at other people's expenses, who are willing to step on anyone to get a leg up over everyone. That kind of evil exists. There is racism and hatred. There is war and violence. There is crime in the world. Evil is active. And if you watch the news, it is pervasive in our world. It's there. And yet there is another kind of darkness that, that comes up in the New Testament, a darkness that, that is not actively evil and in causing extreme suffering in people's lives, but it is a darkness that comes from a lack of understanding. A lack of awareness, uh, being naive about what God is really up to, about being in the dark about who God is and what he's done. That darkness is the not knowing, that it is the not trusting, that it is this, this dynamic of you are in the dark because you have not yet seen the light. And it's not actively evil, but it, it is not a place that is understood the revealed God that has come in Jesus and the difference that makes for us today. And we live in a world today where that kind of darkness is growing. That kind of darkness that says, I'm indifferent to Jesus Christ. Or, yeah, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or, or I don't pay attention to religious stuff. Maybe I'm just spiritual, but not religiously affiliated. That is a form of darkness that is increasingly taking over in the world that we live in today. And it's into that world that we, as the people of Jesus, need to be constantly bringing in the light. 
And so the moment that Jesus is born and the light is breaking into this darkness, this darkness that, that consists of both active evil and suffering and all the hurt and brokenness in the world, but it also consists of just the not knowing and the not believing and the indifference to God's plan of salvation. As Jesus breaks into that world, he is bringing light into the darkness. And so John paints this picture of how this has been happening since the beginning, but at the moment that Jesus is born, it breaks into our world. And that's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing that, that we take for granted because we know the end of the story. We know about the crucifixion and the resurrection. We know uh, that, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died for us. We know uh, that he is the Son of God. But at the moment that this happens, this is one of the most important events in all of human history. And we often just picture it as a coloring sheet. We often just picture it as, as a bunch of animals kind of quietly laying around in the hay uh, while this baby is swaddled and put in this cute little manger. But what's really happening is that a revolution is beginning. What's really happening is that in the, the worldwide historical battle between good and evil, the tide is turning in this moment. We go from being a world that is only the darkness and that doesn't have hope and that doesn't have a, a reason to believe that everything's going to change and that God's going to win until suddenly God shows up in a baby. And in that moment, the revolution has started and the world is only just figuring it out as they start turning the pages that John and Matthew and Mark are writing. And they're telling this story, and it's a story that is telling you that, that not only is Jesus a good teacher of good moral things, and not only is Jesus giving us a greater way to live, but Jesus is bringing a revolution to the creation that will finish what he started in the creation. He's going to make all things new. He's going to fix the brokenness. He's going to save us from sin. Hope is, is beginning because God has come down into our world in a totally new way. The light has come into the darkness. And it's one of the most incredible stories, and we so often just sing the, the Christmas songs about it and miss the power. We miss the power of what God is doing all those years ago in the manger. There's an ad in the New York Times some years back, and the ad uh, said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. It's a great sentiment. It's a great idea. And, and the idea behind that, I, I think, is, is really beautiful. And, and many of us would go, yeah, that is what Christmas is all about. And yet, it really isn't the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is that before Jesus was born, there was no potential for us to be united or pursue peace. Before Jesus, all there was was darkness. All there was was this life and then death. All there was was separation from God. All there was in Israel and in Jerusalem a question of, hey, we keep messing up. We keep having problems with God. Can God even live with us? is the question at the end of the Old Testament. 
questions about uh, what is the meaning of all this? What is this all about? How do we work out our relationship with God? And there's all of these questions, and there is no solid answer. The meaning of Christmas is that without Jesus, there is no unity. Without Jesus, there is no peace. But when Jesus is born, suddenly hope springs forth. Suddenly the battle is is shifted. Suddenly the revolution has begun. Suddenly there is a cause for people to believe that God can be in our presence because he is in our presence in the form of Jesus. And so Jesus answers this question, can God live in the presence of his people and his people live in the presence of God? And if God can become a man and live with us and among us, then the answer is a resounding yes, yes. And then if we fast forward to what we know in hindsight, is that because of the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus says anyone who gets baptized into me and believes in me receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we know today is that God doesn't just dwell in our midst. He dwells within each of us who is one of his children. That's hope. Christmas is the end of the reign of darkness. Christmas is about the end of the kingdom of darkness saying there's nothing more than this world. It's the beginning of us saying everything is now open to us because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ has brought light into the darkness. Things will never be the same. So John gives us this grand image, this grand vision And then Matthew sits down to his blank papyrus, right? He sits down with his blank page, and he begins with what is the most boring beginning of all the Gospels. Especially in the King James, right? Uh, This man begat this man, begat this man, begat this, begat, begat, begat. It's all this beginning, and we kind of just go, whew, skipping that chapter. We skip it. But Matthew's doing something very important, and if you skip the begats, you're going to miss what he's trying to teach us about the beginning of his version of the, new, of the good news. Matthew begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Which right there in that phrase, before he even gets to the begats, he said something important. He said, I'm going to tell you about who Jesus belongs to. Uh, if you've ever, if you grew up in a small town, genealogies probably make more sense to you than if you grew up in a city. Um, because if you grow up in a small town, uh, what everyone wants to know is who, who do you belong to? Who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? Uh, and so who do you come from and who do you know and what kind of people are you? And so in a small town, when you tell someone, hey, this is who I am, they want to know, yeah, but who are your parents? And you tell them who your parents are, and they go, oh, I know who you are now. I know how to fit you right into my understanding of who you are and who I am and who we are. And, and you're either going to be good with me, uh, or we're in a you know, Romeo and Juliet situation, where the Montagues and the Capulets in, in the Wild West are going to have to show down here because of who you are, who your name is. In the ancient world, that was even more true. And so Matthew begins by saying, if you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand who he comes from. 
And he starts by saying, before he even gets into the list, that he is the Messiah, the son of David, which tells you he's of royal blood. This, this baby is fit to be king. And he also tells you that he is the son of Abraham, which tells you that not only is he fit to sit on the throne of Israel, on David's throne, he is also here to fulfill the promises made to Abraham. He is a son of Abraham. And that's kind of an obvious thing to say if you have a Jewish audience to tell them, hey, you need to know that this Israelite is a son of Abraham. Because they would say, yeah, we all are. That's like the definition of who we are as a people. But to say it in this moment is to say so much more. It's to say that the promises made to Abraham are coming true in the person of this boy, Jesus. And he gets into the list and he starts going, uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, begat, 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 right? And we just skim right over it. And what we miss is that Matthew is doing a few very important things in his begatting. One of them is, is that Matthew wants to make sure that his story doesn't begin a long time ago, far, far away. That his story doesn't begin with once upon a time in a world very much like yours, but somewhat different. No, this isn't the beginning of a fairy tale. This isn't the beginning of an animated story or special that you watch on TV with your kids. This is anchored in history. Jesus is the child of, uh, of a man and a woman who, who are raising him in the real world, in living color. God took on flesh is not a children's fable. It's a historical event, and Matthew ties it to history by giving you the list of his descendants going all the way back through Israel's history and weaving this family through the stories of the forefathers and so many of the great Israelites of the past. And he's telling this story, and he's making sure that we don't get the idea that this is just something he made up one day. Jesus is the son of many parents of many generations, going all the way back to Abraham, coming through David, with Ruth in there, and Boaz, and all these names that we know from history, because Jesus is a historical figure. He was alive. He was human. He's more than a story. Matthew, more than just rooting it in history, uses those history, uh, historic stories to tell us something about Jesus. Uh, one of the things that's remarkable is that the, there's some of these stories are a little bit embarrassing. So about the same time that, that Jesus is born, uh, Herod is also uh, ruling in that part of the world, and Herod is putting out his genealogy. Because Herod wants you to know who he is and where he comes from. But Herod does something as he's writing his genealogy. Uh, he writes a lot of it in pencil, but he writes some of it with an eraser. Because there's some embarrassing people in Herod's past. And he doesn't want them in his genealogy. And so he deletes them. And so he says, I'm from the good parts of my family, and I'm not from the bad parts of my family. And as Matthew starts writing Jesus' genealogy, there's some messy stories in here. There's some embarrassing stories in here. And in your family, there's probably a few stories that if you were putting out your family's history, uh, you might write those stories with an eraser and not with the tip of the pencil, right? And yet Matthew doesn't shy away from those stories one bit. 
Matthew puts them in there. Matthew owns that Jesus comes out of the mess that is humanity. Jesus comes out of the difficulty that is in the darkness. Jesus is bringing the light, but it doesn't mean that he comes from perfection. Jesus comes from a family that has experienced brokenness and difficulty and shame and sin, rebellion against God and against people. Jesus comes from that, and he comes to that. The other thing that Matthew does that is very unusual for a genealogy of the ancient world is in four different occasions, in addition to Mary, he includes some of Jesus' grandmothers. It's very unusual for women to be part of, uh, of an ancient genealogy, but it just so happens that Jesus has some pretty famous grandmas. Great, 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 great grandmas, but grandmas nonetheless. And Matthew includes the stories of these women. And one of the things that's remarkable is that three of them are not Israelites. Three of them are likely uh, Gentiles. And they are foreigners. They are Canaanites. They are, um, uh, one of them is married to a Hittite. And these foreigners and these women, Matthew includes. And you get this idea that he's saying, this isn't just for the people of influence. This isn't just for the people of, uh, of power. This isn't just for the people that everyone expects to be included. Jesus is coming for everybody. He comes from everybody and he comes for everybody. And when you look at the stories of these four women, what you see is some difficult stories. Tamar, the first one, is a Canaanite married uh, to two of Judah's sons. And, and, and Tamar's story is, is really shocking. Tamar's story is, is uh, difficult to tell and to talk about. It's an interesting thing uh, when your kids tell you that they're going to start reading the Bible and they're going to start in Genesis and you're like, man, this is fantastic. I love that my kids are reading the Bible and they get to Genesis 1 and you're like, that's right, God created in Genesis 2. That's right, God created in Genesis 3. Things fell apart, but God's already working out a plan. And then they get to Genesis 38 and they're like, hey, what's going on here with Tamar? And you're like, hey, uh, let's talk about the New Testament maybe. And, and then there's a preacher, and you're like, you're wanting to make these points. And you're like, but the kids are in the room, and so what do you do with this? Because Genesis 38, is an, it's, it's a messy, messy story. And if you're not familiar with it, um, I'll try and kind of innuendo my way through it here. But Judah uh, gets married, and he has three sons. And the first one uh, is named Er, and he gets married. And Er is evil in God's sight, so God kills him, and he doesn't have a child. And he has another son named Onan, and he tells Onan, Onan, you need to be with your husband's, uh, your, for, your former brother's, well, he's still your brother, your now dead brother's wife so that you can produce an heir because this is an incredibly important dynamic in the ancient world is that you have to produce an heir so that your blessing, your name, your inheritance can continue to be passed on to another generation. When there is a family that is unable to produce an heir, it is the end of hope for that family. It is the end of their line. It is the end of, of all of the generations that have come up to them. It is a dead end in that family's future. It's the, and so, so many of these stories about struggling to have children are not just about struggling to have children and what is incredibly difficult for families even today, but it's also about the end of a legacy the end of your family. 
So Judah tells his second son uh, to do his, his duty and to produce an heir, uh, and he is uh, unholy in his way of going about that, and so God kills him too. So now Judah, who has had two sons that God has been offended by and who is killed because they have been uh, evil and doing things they ought not to have been doing, decides that there's one constant in the reasons that his sons keep dying. Uh, it's surely going to be Tamar. Tamar has got to be the common link that is causing his sons to die without an heir. And so he tells her, hey, go live with your family as a widow until my youngest son is old enough, and then you can come back and produce an heir, and the family line will continue. But he doesn't mean it. He doesn't mean it at all, and, and she knows that, and so she goes to live as a widow, which means you take the shame of the lack of an heir. You take uh, the shame of not being married back to your father's house, and you just live there in your shame is his plan until his son grows older, and then he still has other plans anyways. And what follows is a story of deceit and of, uh, of seduction, a story of, of, of immorality, but doing what is ultimately required of Tamar to produce the air that is needed. And if you want more than that, it's in Genesis 38, and you can go get it later. But what, what I want you to see is that Tamar is in the pit of hopelessness. She's in the darkness. She has no future. She has no opportunity. She has no way forward, and she finds a way. Later, we get to uh, the story of, uh, of Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, the foreigner who is married uh, to Naomi's son, and, and Naomi's husband and her sons die, and she has these two foreign daughters-in-law, and she says, listen, just go back to your people and find husbands from your people. I don't have any other sons to offer you. If you come with me, it is a life of hopelessness that you choose. It is the end of your line. It's the end of your legacy. I have nothing to offer you. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Incredible faithfulness in the midst of hopelessness. Ruth ends up going out and following the laborers in the field and taking up the leftover wheat and taking it and making enough for her and her mother-in-law to eat. She is in dire poverty. And in the midst of that, she meets Boaz. And there's the beginning of this love story that brings hope where there used to be no hope. And as Ruth and Boaz eventually become uh, married, and at their marriage uh, and the betrothal, there is a blessing that the people of the town pronounce over her, may you be fruitful as Tamar was, who had two sons. The Tamar story ends with this incredible moment of hope that becomes this blessing that's pronounced over Ruth, two of Jesus' grandmas. There's the story uh, of Bathsheba. In the genealogy, when you get to Bathsheba's name, what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't put her name in there. Matthew gets to that part and he says, uh, and then, of course, there is Solomon who was born uh, to David and the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Uh, David, when he was leading up to his becoming king, gathers around him this great group of men who were warriors and who would do all kinds of things for him and go to great battles and have great victories. These mighty men who would do anything for David. There's nothing for him that they wouldn't do. And one of them was a Hittite named Uriah. And Uriah is married to Bathsheba. 
And we know the famous story of how David sees Bathsheba and decides that he wants to take her as his own. And as king, there is nothing that is off limits to you. And so he takes what he wants. And he takes Bathsheba. And in, in that moment, she becomes pregnant. And when she's pregnant, he realizes, oh no, Uriah's at battle and I'm here. People might figure this out. And so he invites Uriah home, and Uriah comes home, and he tries to, to get Bathsheba to seduce him, and he take an opportunity to be with her. But he says, I will not be with my wife while my soldiers are in the field without me. And so David says, well, there's only one thing I can do. I have to kill him so that no one knows what I've done. And so he sends Uriah back to the front lines, and he tells the rest of the troops to pull back, and he's left there alone, and he's killed. And it's only later that the prophet Nathan comes to David and exposes him for what he's done. It's a dark story. Because we live in a dark world. And Matthew, in his genealogy, hides these little nuggets that don't ignore the darkness. And that don't ignore the brokenness. And that don't ignore that things aren't going well, even with people that are a person after God's own heart. So he doesn't name Bathsheba, he names Uriah and reminds us of what David did and to whom he did it. But God still keeps working and a son is produced who became King Solomon. And over and over again through these stories of Rahab, the prostitute, who was in Canaan and who was faithful to the spies and who took, uh, chose to believe in their God versus her own God, risked her own life for the sake of God's people, and she becomes part of the family of Jesus. And so over and over again in these stories of hopelessness, God breaks through with hope. In these stories where they say, I don't believe that I will ever have a child or a son, and things are going completely wrong, a child is produced by God's mercy and God's grace and God's faithfulness. And this happens over and over again through this genealogy until eventually Jesus is born. And if you could imagine that just for a moment that you could see in heaven that, that in the moments before Jesus is born, that you could go there and you could see God and God is standing there in, in, in heaven with all of the promises that he's made to us and all of the blessings that he has for us. And, and there's this moment where God has all of those promises wrapped up in his arms. And the only problem is that they're promises that can only be delivered to us in person. They can only be delivered if God comes down from heaven with the promises and begins delivering to them, them to us by hand, delivering them to us in person. And if Jesus isn't born, the promises can't come. If Jesus isn't born, the promises are still there in heaven waiting for us, but we can't receive them. But the moment that Jesus is born, the promises begin bursting forth. The promises begin coming through this child who becomes a man, who becomes a teacher, who becomes a rabbi, who takes disciples, and he becomes a healer and a preacher and a prophet and a messiah and a sacrifice for us. And there's nothing that he won't do to bring us into God's midst, 
to bring the promises that are stored for us up until then in heaven, bursting forth so that we can receive them if we're just willing to say, I'll take some of those promises. I'll take what was previously not available to me in the darkness, but now is because of the light. So hope begins when Jesus is born. Not a long time ago, far, far away, but to parents in a real manger in history from heaven to earth in a way that changed everything in the beginning of a revolution where good wins and light begins to overcome the darkness, defeating the evil and bringing knowledge to where there was previously just darkness. And if you're here today and you're hearing this story and you're thinking, I want to be part of the revolution that Jesus started and that we continue today as his disciples. What Jesus tells us is that when he brings the light to the darkness, that the darkness cannot overcome light. Light always wins. And Jesus won. There were three days where it looked like darkness had won, that darkness reigned over the earth, that the sun was blotted out because Jesus was crucified on a cross. But Jesus couldn't stay dead. And so on the third day, he gets out of the tomb and light bursts forth again, offering life and light and an opportunity to live with God within us and us with God for eternity. If you're just willing to receive the promises that God has in store for you. The Bible tells us that if you believe and are baptized, you can be saved. If you want to make that decision or have any other need this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing. All to Jesus I surrender.